Welcome to Future Directions, a podcast about research. Happy Halloween to those who celebrate it. This episode is appropriate for the occasion because what's scarier than climate change? Nothing. I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Kim Cobb, a climate scientist who's passionate about our oceans and has been very vocal in her efforts to share research in a way that can impact policymaking. I hope you enjoy. Cool. Welcome to the podcast. Let's start with your PhD in oceanography at the Scripps Institute of Oceanography. So this fear that our oceans are dying has been going on for as long as I can remember, really. Was this also the case when you were thinking about doing your PhD? And if so, is that one of the reasons why you went into the field? No, I, I think I was pretty naive back in the day. And maybe the situation wasn't as dire as it is today. And that's that's for sure. But I was always inspired by the ocean as a kid growing up and used to take vacations to the coast and I just would relax into my soul (laughs) and, you know, really wasn't until late in my undergraduate career that I realized that, you know, I could combine my passion for the ocean with like an actual career (laughs) or actual line of study called oceanography it just wasn't on my radar growing up. And so I was late to that realization, but it, it was very strongly reinforced by the idea that the oceans play such an important role in climate. And climate change was something that was just kind of, you know, tipping through the fog of our collective consciousness, including me. And so I thought, wow, you know, this could be a very big deal. <laughs> and if it is, the oceans will be a really important piece of it and I love the oceans anyway so that kind of added up to more than enough to Mm. to propel me to graduate school. Nice. Now you're a professor here at the School of Earth and Atmospheric Science in Georgia Tech and you're also a Georgia Power Chair and you have your own lab. Yes (laughs) and I have four kids. (laughs) Goals. So can you briefly tell us about um, the research that you do? Yeah so I'm a climate scientist, and I came into this through the ocean. And so what that really meant was trying to find a way to, you know, conduct research in the ocean that would help inform climate change. And in my case, I stumbled upon some early projects that looked at the history of ocean temperature extremes as recorded in sediment sequences off the coast of California And I kind of got hooked on this idea that, um, you know, looking at the amplitude and the frequency of ocean temperature extremes back into the past, as far as we could go, would really help us to understand the climate system better today and, of course, how it might be changing into the future. As you can hear at this point in our recording, a weird noise showed up, which I'm going to say was a ghost trying to communicate with us. But unfortunately, I had to cut part of my interview with Dr. Cobb. So I'm going to quickly summarize some of the information that was missed because it was pretty helpful in understanding the type of research done in climate science. And I want to share that with you guys. Her lab focuses on reconstructing ocean temperature extremes, which she says there's already evidence these temperature extremes are changing. They also collect coral skeletons and analyze them in lab for chemical variations, which can give us an idea of the history of ocean temperatures. Basically, a lot of her work and a lot of work in climate science, for that matter, relies on models that help us predict future temperature changes so we can be prepared for how that might affect us. 
A big part of her research program is analyzing new data sets and comparing these to global climate models that we have and seeing how well these models predict past trends. I asked how collaborative the climate research community is, and she said it was very much a collaborative environment. In fact, it needs to be. They're constantly sharing data sets with each other. A typical day in the lab ranges from coding up in MATLAB to planning trips to remote locations for data collection. Okay, let's get back to our conversation. Would you say there has been a study published or a finding that has been the most impactful for the field in the past decade? Oh my goodness. I mean, I think there have been so many that um, have just inspired me with the elegance of their setup Mm -hmm. scientifically or um, the surprising nature of their findings. You know, in climate science, it's just... You know, it's basically like drinking from a fire hose. There's so much going on across so many disciplines Especially all now. the time. Yeah, I mean, it just doesn't show any sign of letting up. You know, obviously, I really enjoy looking over what our community is able to synthesize and put forward to policymakers. Mm-hmm. And so I think those are the documents I would point to first. And, and those are the documents that, I know cover to cover, even though they're, you know, kind of like a thousand pages long. (laughs) You know, these are the reports associated with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And um, there was a report when I was in graduate school in 1995, and there was another report in 2001, et cetera, et cetera. And kind of coming full circle on that, I'm very honored to now sit on the lead author team for the assessment that will come out in 2021, the sixth assessment. And so to be part of that synthesis process, to be charged, to have the honor of digesting your entire community's literature and in digesting it and packaging it for decision making in climate change. I mean, it's obviously a pinnacle of my existence as a climate <laughs> scientist, but it really is just born of um, my own interest in and value in the process of translating climate science findings into the policy realm. Mm -hmm. Those are the pieces of our work that we should, I feel we should be most proud of as a community. And I will defend most strongly, of course, um, and unfortunately come under, you know, a lot of attack these days. But But those are the iconic pieces of our field's history that will outlast me by many generations. And do you think that's where we should be moving forward to? We should just focus on putting out research that really impacts political parties to act? Well, I mean, there are all kinds of scientists and researchers out there, and there's room for everybody because the questions that we have in science are important, and it takes a diversity of approaches and a diversity of platforms um, and a diversity of products. And so... Again, I think it's just a matter of thinking about where where am I drawn individually, you know, as a scientist, and what do I care about, and what are the needles out there that I want to move? And if the answer comes back and you just say, you know, I just love the scientific method, <laughs> and I just love being with a group of people charging forward on a sticky question out there, that's great. Power to those people. I think personally, my own take on climate science and this has been so for at least a decade or more, yeah, way before we had, you know, some of the climate crisis language that we have today. But, you know, my my stance has increasingly been, look, you know, I'm only here for one lifetime and I've been 
um, granted such an immense amount of skills and privilege and freedom. I mean, freedom, that's a big word. And I am a tenured professor. So that privilege and that freedom to me translates into a responsibility and a role in society to fill. And so I'm kind of always challenging myself, especially as the volume comes up on the climate change discussions and, you know, decisions about our future and what data to believe or not believe and where the uncertainties are and how can we beat them back. You know, I'm increasingly challenging myself to go to those areas that, um, you know, maybe kind of pretty hard areas and areas where the science can be more readily actionable to societal benefit. And again, you know, that comes from years of skills building, network building and privilege and freedom that I'm actually even able to say those words. But it doesn't mean every one of my colleagues who sits in a chair like this, you know, has to approach it that way. You know, some of them are, again, like, I love the scientific method. I love my lab. (laughs) You know, I like riding my bike back from work and there's my life and it's Mm -hmm. great. And there's, I think there's room for everybody. It must be frustrating to know so much about this anthropogenic climate change and be so well informed and like see the evidence firsthand. I'm a person who's like constantly scared of the world ending and I feel like it's a thing of my generation too. Um, So... As an expert, is there anything you can tell me that first that I can do as an individual to help, even if it's the smallest thing? Mm-hmm. And also any anything you can tell me to not worry as much? <laughs> I mean, okay, I'm going to tackle the are we all going to die first? Because I want to clear that up because I, I don't want you to walk away from this interview thinking that, that I didn't take the opportunity to address that or your listeners for that matter. But, um, you know, we're not going to die in 12 years or whatever. Um, There's no cliff that we're going to fall off of, which is existential doom for our species or anything like that. Um, You will have a habitable planet to live on. However, (laughs) there's got to be a however here. However, the science is very, very, very clear that millions of people are going to be Um, in the bullseye of climate change, and that um, the most vulnerable classes of global societies are going to be those that are most at risk, uh, literally of losing their lives, definitely of losing their livelihoods and their well-being and their access to resources. And so thinking about what kind of world we'd like to deliver to ourselves because it's actually not that far off yeah (laughs) um but but you know not only just ourselves but future generations that will um have to grapple with decisions that we make within the next 20 years that's what is worth fighting for Mm -hmm. and so i i don't know hope i mean you know hope is a big word and it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to go out and act either (laughs) to have hope so so I will say that I am um, a very engaged optimist because I believe that we have time Mm -hmm. to avert the most damaging impacts of climate change in my lifetime, let alone yours. And the idea that we can, in the next 20 years, make decisions that will shape not just this century, but millennia to come, is a pretty powerful motivating force for me. And so rather than being defeatist and overwhelmed, which don't get me wrong, I do feel sometimes that way because, yeah, the the trains don't really seem to be moving fast enough. 
that's for sure. But the trains are accelerating every day. And we see that all around us in um, youth activists getting engaged in this and all the cities and states and other countries even that are uh, meaningfully engaged and drawing down their emissions and trying to enact policies to move the needle in any number of productive ways. So we see this happening all around us. The question is, you know, can, can we reach a, a tipping point in society at whatever scale it would be, Atlanta, Georgia, the United States, or of course, globally, can we reach that tipping point such that um, this becomes something that accelerates very, very, very quickly, mm-hmm. not at the pace it's been going. And so we have to kind of think about that. So now to answer your second question about what can you do, I kind of like to bring that question right down to the individual and ask ourselves, what are our personal tipping points that can help us find another gear of engagement on this topic? So if we are concerned and if we are aware of the 20 or so years that we have to end up on either very, very bad trajectories Um, or very, very favorable ones compared to where we are, as close to where we are as possible, please, Um, you know, we we have to ask ourselves what what we are willing to do. And I think that that's different for everybody. Mm -hmm. And there's no right answer to that. But to wake up in the morning and be able to say, you know, I, I care, I still care, I cared yesterday, I still care today. And I'm going to take that next small step for myself. And I'm going to challenge myself about my own tipping point of engagement. And I think for young people, especially, I'm so jealous in a way because, (laughs) you know, young people really have their whole professional lives ahead of them. And they have grown up with this awareness throughout most of their schooling and definitely has been a household issue for their entire lives in a way that it wasn't for me. And so, you know, while I find myself like struggling to find new gears in my gearbox, you know, they're grinding a little bit professionally because I have built a lot of inertia into um, my professional choices to date. And I would have made different choices (laughs) back then Mm -hmm. if I were um, in your shoes today. And wow, how fun would it be to sit back and say, you know, I don't have to do, you know, traditional disciplinary research. I can like combine things mm-hmm. in amazing new ways and, yeah. and I can go out and be trained up as a communicator. I can have, you know, professional uh, compensation <laughs> related to my role as a communicator in this space or an activist in this space um, in ways that never dawned on me back in the day. And that could, could be combined with a career that is grounded and um, STEM training and research training and that those are actually really helpful for moving the needle out there. And there's a million different ways to leverage a STEM degree today in ways that there wasn't back in my day. So so that that keeps me going. So that's one thing for young people to think about, about what is their tipping point and how can they paint a picture of their arc, of their personal life and their professional life in a way that is fulfilling to them at, at the, for the issues that they most care about. The other thing I like to think about, um, and this has been a more recent series of reflections, is regarding the tipping point of my own personal choices in my day-to-day life. And while those are never going to solve climate change, you know, the fact that I bike to work, the fact that I'm taking a train to DC tonight for 14 hours instead of flying, 
the fact wow. that I am um, what I call an aspiring vegan. You know, I I have solar panels on my roof. Oh, that's um, awesome. I compost. But the fact that I do those things is not going to solve our problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what does it do for me then? It, it reminds me every day, again, that I care. And that when I strike out on a new path to my own low-carbon future, I am, you know, building momentum in ways that I can't possibly see because I'm a small little person on the planet. Mm-hmm. I am building momentum in market forces. I am building momentum in, in cultural change um, in ways that I think must be part of the solution as well. So they, they just frankly keep me going. Mm-hmm. So they keep me engaged. They keep me looking forward. They keep me asking what's next for myself, what's next for my family, what's next for Georgia Tech, what's next for Atlanta, what's next for Georgia, what's next for this country. What's next and how can I be part of those tipping points that we need to accelerate towards with everything we've got? And so I think that there's a role for the individual taking um, a, a leading role in their own life, on their own path, whatever that looks like, and to be celebrated and celebrate each other every step of those paths. While there's also a role for thinking about, gee, like, how do I plug into the bigger picture here? What are some of the levers that I have access to? And if it's um, STEM training and, you know, a passion for science, that's awesome because those people are critically important to our climate future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there there is definitely a lot to do, but I think, like you said, there's a lot of different ways to do it, especially nowadays. So we do need to start thinking about how to do that. <laughs> yeah, what's, what we've done hasn't really worked. So exactly. um, I'm really trusting all of you young, you know, energetic, creative people to to help us find those new pathways. And mm-hmm. I, I do think that the, the movement and the, the platform of climate justice and social justice is, is a new, is a new voice in, in this space. And, you know, people are going to say, Oh my God, Dr. Cobb, like it's not new. People have been like writing about this for decades. And that's very, very true, but they haven't really, you know, they haven't really been part of the national conversation until now. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I like, it's not like climate scientists were either. Right. I mean, <laughs> they're all just marginalized over there. <laughs> But, um, but I'm, I'm really happy to have a diverse set of voices and faces and passions and purposes and skill sets because, you know, it's really an all of the above moment that we're in right now. Yeah. It's time to see the momentum of that coming to fruition, frankly, every day. Yeah. And just talking about it and just having it be a thing that most people are aware of is yeah. the first step. I think, yeah, so. right. Eventually they'll be like, I can't believe y'all didn't ever follow, you know, legislate around climate justice. <laughs> right. You know, we're going to be like, oh my God, you have no idea. Let me tell you some stories. <laughs> well, actually one of the things I want to do with all my free time is um, write a children's book that would be kind of written from the perspective of a child in the in the 2050s sitting on their grandma's lap and the grandma is telling them all the things that they used to do that were crazy wow like oh my god we used to fly around on a weekend getaway to europe the child will be like oh no you didn't oh my god or like can you believe every family owned two cars in america and the child will be like no what i mean really good idea we should do that or like we use all these plastic bottles yeah. that we knew would never degrade for like a thousand years. And we just like threw them away. Like you found them on streets all over the place. Like people used to go to Costco and like wheel out with like 500 of them on a pallet for the week. Like these things happen. 
And then people be like, oh my god, you guys were crazy. What were you smoking? I don't know what we were smoking. It was just like, yeah, but here we are, honey, and it's going to be okay. And, you know, it's better now. And look at your future. You know, what what is your future going to look like? What are you going to say to your grandkid Mm -hmm. when they sit on the lap? What are the things that you look around and you say, oh my god, we know this has to change. So that's another Anyway, well, I'm excited to read that. (laughs) Yeah, right. I need to find like a week of of free time somewhere. So finally, I just wanted to bring it back to research. What advice would you give to young scientists who are thinking about starting a career in climate science? Yeah, I mean, again, I would say that there's never been a better time to get into climate science. And I, I mean that just recognizing that there's so many ways to engage in climate science. And so, you know, you can be a climate science communicator. You could be a climate science documentary maker. You can be a climate science fundraiser. You can be a climate science um, activist and lobbyist so that we can get the funding that we need and we can get the voices that we need in the halls of government. Mm -hmm. Um, There are so many ways to approach being part of the solution and a firm grounding in in STEM training almost from any field is, is enough today because it's not like you need to know an encyclopedic, you know, knowledge about climate science to know what the problem is. Mm-hmm. It's pretty clear. <laughs> and, you know, we publish a thousand page reports for a reason because, you know, we don't rely on people who are uh, in need of information to wade through the millions of papers that we publish. And so there's really never been a better time to think about what is your passion what is your skill sets? What do you care about? And then try to chart a course that is looks very different than the people that taught you at, at university. Mm-hmm. And so I would say just roll up your sleeves, find some good mentors and get going. Yes. Well, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. Okay, yeah. That was awesome. Absolutely. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Yes. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please feel free to share this podcast with anyone you think would be interested. Well, share it even if you don't think they'd be interested, because you never know. Follow Future Directions on Instagram and Twitter, and let me know what you think. Let's create a community of forward thinkers. See you next time!